This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of Burn It All Down, the first episode of 2018. It may not be the feminist sports podcast you want, but it's the feminist sportcast you need. On this week's panel, we've got Amira Rose Davis, Associate Professor of History at Penn State and all-around badass, Jessica Luther, independent writer, general slayer, and author of Unsportsmanlike Conduct, College Football and the Politics of Rape, Lindsay Gibbs, the brilliant and indomitable sports writer at Think Progress, and I'm Shereen Ahmed, freelance sports writer and cat lover, freezing in Toronto, Canada. Before we dive into our first recorded episode, I want to take this time to remind our flamethrowers about our new Patreon campaign. You pledge a certain amount monthly, as low as $2 and as high as you want, to become an official patron of the podcast. In exchange for your monthly contribution, you get access to special rewards. With only the price of coffee a month, you can get access to extra segments of the podcast, a monthly letter, and an opportunity to record on the burn pile, only available to those in our Patreon community. So far, we've been able to solidify funding for proper editing and transcripts, but are really hoping to reach our dream of hiring a producer to help us with the show. Burn It All Down is a labor of love, and we all believe in this podcast. But having a producer to help us as we grow would be amazing, as would be the opportunity for all of us to meet and go on the road for live Burn It All Down. So this week, we're going to start the show with some commentary on the weather. (laughs) (laughs) My commentary is this is bad. (laughs) It's very cold. I have a blanket wrapped around me. I have Ugg boots on and I have three shirts on in case anybody is wondering how Lindsay is doing in Washington, D.C. And right I want to say I grew up in New England. It's not like cold is a new thing, but the, it's bone chilling. It's the type of cold in Chicago that you get when you turn a quarter and the wind hits you and it gets into the like into your bones and you cannot get warm. <laughs> like I don't remember. It's been and it's been too, like you know, I lived in New York for nine years. I've been in D.C. for three years right now. I know I'm like a weak Southerner, but like, you know, I've lived in the North for a while. You know, I've lived in cold areas, but like it's been two straight weeks of like below 20 degrees <laughs> and mostly in single digits. Like that's a lot. Shereen, how is it in Canada? Well, I mean, I'm born and raised here, so it's not like, you know, we're talking about living in the cold. It doesn't matter. I've been fucking here for 40 years and my face hurts. It doesn't stop hurting when I go outside. And I think the reality is that this is why I I kind of insert this joke about people talking about, like, face veil bands in Canada. I'm sorry, but at this point, everybody's face is covered in this this part of the world. (laughs) Like, because it's so damn cold that, like, you're walking around. And I was actually on the subway last night and people were bumping into 
to each other because their jackets are so <laughs> tightened that their hoods are covering their faces. And, you know, like it's just it's it, that you, that's absolutely excusable and typical Canadian behavior. Sorry, sorry, sorry. You know, you go ahead. You go ahead. But, you know, it's Jess, just are you listening oh, to this conversation you, and just. Yeah. Jess, I would like I'm you just, to, to please just don't say anything. That would be great. <laughs> yeah, I'm just being quiet right now. It's not. It's been cold here, but it's not right now. Shereen, one of my coworkers walked into the bank yesterday with one of the, or this week with one of those full face masks on. They had to come up to him and were like, sir, can you take that off? <laughs> like, it's not, it's not a good thing to walk into a bank with a black, well, a black hoodie. Why would we joke like, about the cold? I, I do want to draw attention though that uh Aaron Maben, former Penn State All-American and former NFL player has also highlighted this week that the cold affects people who don't necessarily have the infrastructure to handle it. Uh, he's been raising and amplifying a campaign. He's now a Baltimore school public schools teacher and Baltimore schools do not have heat. These kids are going to school oh. in, in bundled up in coats. A video that he posted is a video he took of his class. He asked the kids how their day was and they said very, 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 very cold. They should not be in the schools and the schools should have heaters. And so one of the things he's amplifying that I did want to amplify here was a GoFundMe by Samira Jones, who's a senior at Coppin State University in Baltimore, but also graduate school of a uh, graduate of the Baltimore City Public School Systems. And she's been raising a GoFundMe account to basically get hats, gloves, socks, and coats, et cetera, for students to get heaters in the schools. And they've been going past their goal. It's amazing. We'll link this and, and tweet this GoFundMe out because it's a great campaign. And it's also really sad that Baltimore pu public schools need a campaign to get their students, you know, things that, that yeah. shouldn't be barriers to learning. And this is kind of what systemic inequality looks like. So when I'm cold and I think about that and I complain about that and that is all completely accurate. And then I also, you know, want to take time to think about those, the marginalized folks, you know, who, who can't handle the cold as well as I can. Which this is a perfect segue onto our first topic, the Winter Olympics, which many of the events are held outside. <laughs> exactly. Do you get cold watching the Winter Olympics? Like, I, I do. Yes. Yes. Shall I get Lindsay? us? Shall I get us going? All right. I, yeah. I, I thought you were saying something else, Shereen. Sorry. No, we're, no, we're a little sorry. out of practice, you guys. We've had we're we've taken a couple of weeks <laughs> off, so we've forgotten how to do all this. <laughs> Typically, when we think of the Winter Olympics, diversity is not one of the first words that comes to mind, but. This past week, there have been a few reasons to kind of cheer signs that maybe these Olympic sports are starting to become slightly more inclusive. So a few examples of that. Last month, one of our badass women of the week was Mame Biney, who became the first African-American woman to qualify for the U.S. short track speed skating team. She is phenomenal. And this week at long track speed skating trials, Erin Jackson, a badass roller derby and inline skater who just began speed skating on ice four months ago 
four months. She finished God. third and became the first African-American <laughs> woman to make it onto the U.S. Olympic long track team. So those are two really groundbreaking performances in just wow. one month. You also have Shawnee Davis, who is, of course, a trailblazer in this regard. He is qualified for his fifth Olympics in long track speed skating. You had Jordan Greenway became the first black hockey player to ever make a Team USA Olympic hockey team. That is a 98 year of whiteness and I believe there have been a a native player who did make it before that a a few other exciting things that made me happy this week was star Andrews who did not make the Olympic figure skating team but this 16 year old black U.S. skater established herself as the future of the sport when at U.S. figure skating trials this week when she skated her short program was to Beyonce and her long her free skate was to get this Whitney Houston's one moment in time and star Andrews sang the song that she skated to (laughs) yeah she covered it yeah like she was covering it was her vocals it was ridiculous she was so good I mean she nailed her program it wasn't technically high enough at this point in her career you know to get her on the team but it was a chilling moment you have to watch it and Come to find out, she is, I don't know if any of you remember in 2010, when this wonderful, or 2009, I believe it was, when this wonderful viral video of a nine-year-old black figure skater skating to Whip Your Hair by Willow Smith. That star Andrews. That That star Andrews. So, uh, isn't that amazing? So I linked all that on the Burn It All Down Twitter account this week, if you want to go back and look at that. It was really exciting. But that's, you know, it's very exciting. Exciting to see that there is a, a black figure skater up and coming in the sport. And we also, there are two other, in, in the U.S. world, there are two other groundbreaking nominations that might happen. Now, I have to say that we are recording this on Sunday morning. We are an hour or two away from the men's U.S. figure skating team being named. And there is a, a big controversy right now. Adam Rippon, who would be the first openly gay male on any Team USA Olympic team, because we've never had a gay male on openly gay male on the Summer Olympics team either. And we've never had an openly gay Winter Olympian in Team USA. But he was expected to make the team, but he did not have a great performance in his free skate last night and finished fourth. Now, the, he has a very impressive international resume. So So the nominating committee could, and many people think should, still put him on the team, but that's not official yet, and we won't know for a couple of hours, unfortunately. But if he doesn't make it, then Gus Kenworthy, a freestyle skier who came out after the Sochi Olympics, is expected to make it onto the team this year. So we are expected to have some openly LGBTQ athletes, which is also very exciting when it comes to diversity. But anyways, I wanted to ask you guys, I've been, it's been kind of a beacon for me to see these barriers getting broken and to see these sports kind of progressively moving forward. But of course, we have to talk a little bit about why these barriers have historically been so tough to break and whether we can see this trend going forward. Amira, why don't we start with you? Yeah. Yeah. You know, for no reason, no reason. Yeah. (laughs) There's definitely a history, uh, a long history of, of kind of absence from Winter Games. Now, the kind of stereotype and, and the joke, like Black people just don't do cold, right, is often uh, often thrown about. And it's kind of joking, but also there is some geographical, uh, is that the word geographic? There you go. You know, stuff about this. 
more than half of black populations tend to live in the South. And a lot of the concentrations of these games are in kind of cold weather, northern kind of Nordic places. But also there's huge access, there's huge barriers to access. A lot of winter sports fall into the category of needing a lot of time and money. I know now that I live in the middle of Pennsylvania, my daughter has this school program that will pick them up and take them snowboarding and skiing. But, you know, my husband did not have that in inner city Philadelphia. But I also think that it's one of these things. It's the same as some of the sports in the Summer Olympics that we see as as a kind of bastion of, of whiteness, like swimming. And when we see those barriers get broken, we see people get into that, it actually does start paying a path and leaving a foundation for folks to go and pursue these other fields and these other opportunities. But it, you know, all week it just made me think back. I don't know if you guys remember in 2006, Bryant Gumbel, right, talked about the Winter Olympics. And he basically went on a thing on HBO Sports and he was like, listen, you know, nobody's watching them. Nobody knows what's happening. Like if there's black people in them, then I'd watch because it's absolutely ridiculous to say these are the greatest athletes on earth when it's just like, you know, uh, I look and I see a sea of whiteness. And so he he just kind of went on like a, a kind of funny rant on HBO about it, but it got picked up and, and made into a big deal in part because he basically said that the Winter Olympics looks like a GOP convention. Um, <laughs> and I'm kind of like, where's the lie? But but what that did is yeah. mean that Breitbart and a lot of kind of right-wing media folks came after him and said, well, he's the real racist because he's saying that there's, you know, he, it was a whole storm. So I was thinking a lot about this this week that annoying and it's very exciting to see all these the numbers increase and increase in high profile ways and I think that's really really important but also I think that it's we can kind of laugh at what Gumbel's saying, but there is a kind of truth in that that requires addressing some of these other barriers to participation. And some of it is this kind of stereotype that, you know, if you have a black kid, you're going to push them into basketball, you push them into track, you push them into sports that have stereotypically been where people think, oh, black people are going to excel. And I think that that goes a really long way in making other sports and not just winter sports, but sports like swimming swimming, right, lacrosse, sports that are still places where you don't really get numbers of Black people present and and other people of color. Yeah, I just wanted to say that too. I mean, we see an absence, particularly of South Asian, you know, the the subcontinent athletes in these spaces also. And I think one of the things I used to play ice hockey when I was really little, but also I think we really need to think about the socioeconomic factors. Like for hockey is really expensive and rep hockey in Canada is really expensive insofar that a really close friend of mine, her husband was an amazing ball hockey player, but because he grew up in government housing, he actually couldn't afford to play ice hockey. Even if he had the equipment donated to him, he couldn't afford the fees, which are in the thousands. So like he just resorted to playing ball hockey and they called him the Parthenon because of like how amazing he was in skill. But at the time, different clubs didn't offer scholarships and stuff like that to people who needed it. And I think it was just that story has always made me think because he's like a huge fan of hockey. Now his children play. And the first thing he did was make sure his children had access to hockey and they all play now. And I just think about that a lot because I see it when you've got like predominantly immigrant 
immigrant families coming as well. Like I'm the daughter of immigrants. The priorities for that are survival, their education always, and they don't always extend to sports. Seriously. And this is something that I've done in my work and my research and my lived experience of seeing it. And there's a certain class privilege that comes with sports, you know. So I, you know, I just wanted to say that. Lindsay wanted to add something or you guys want to rock, paper, scissors for the next one? The scenes are like, Tom, baby shirtless flag bear. Spoiler alert, spoiler alert. Before I I wanted to quickly say that building on what Amir was saying about, you know, how these aren't the best athletes, we are seeing in sports like bobsled there is a lot more recruiting to try and get the the track and field athletes who of course are predominantly black to then switch over and be push athletes and and you know convert athletes that way and we have seen a lot of diversifying and a lot of success in bobsled and i think that also aaron jackson showing that you can that these skills and this athleticism does transfer i think we're going to start seeing people looking outside of the box and looking more towards recruiting the great athletes to these top to these winter sports as well because look it it is a slightly less competitive space overall than the summer sports and there's uh yeah there's a future speaking of uh trying to get into the winter olympics because it's slightly less competitive um amira go ahead yes so basically i think he's one more race but peter tafa Tufua, I hope I got that right, um, who some may remember as the shirtless Tongan flag bearer. He was um, in Taekwondo for the Summer Olympics. He was very oily. Oh, <laughs> I remember this no, Just thinking that oil, yeah. Oily. Oh, yes. so shiny. So athlete. Oh. is attempting to qualify <laughs> in cross-country skiing. He is ne- before 2016 suggests, you know, two years ago, he had never competed in snow at all, but he said he hopes to make history for Tonga and he wow. doesn't fear it. And he's basically one race away from qualifying. It's definitely within the realm of possibility. Um, and it definitely adds to what we're seeing in, in not just huh. Black people in the United States and not just people of color in the United States, but really global. And this is, again, the Nigerian bobsled team, as, as Lindsay was talking about as well, and we've profiled before. You're definitely seeing some of this crossover from Summer Olympics and and trying their hand at different winter olympic sports and it's so fun to see although i feel like if he qualifies for the game he might not be the shirtless flag bearer this time in Pyeongchang. no he apparently he's having to wear extra layers <laughs> right. other skiers because he's so cold but here's what i i you know i have an exciting opportunity for all of us he actually has a GoFundMe because, as we talked about, there's a lot of socioeconomic factors here, and he's already $30,000 in debt because of this journey. So he has a GoFundMe, and oh my here's the exciting thing. For $5, he will put your name on his jacket to be worn at all appropriate media interviews <gasps> and races. We are in this together, he says. So I would like to think that Burn It All Down would like to become an official sponsor of... <laughs> Oh my gosh. Yes. (laughs) Everyone, five dollars. Do you think we can do it? We can do it. Oh, yes. Yeah. You know, it's just all about diversity and inclusion, friends. It's all about that. That nothing else. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So staying on topic of the Olympics, I 
was really struck this week by the story that's come out of North Korea. And if you ever want perfect proof that sports and politics are intimately linked, North Korea has actually provided it recently. So in his New Year's Day address, Kim Jong-un, the North Korean leader, offered to participate in talks with South Korea, specifically over sending a delegation to the Winter Olympics. Then, last week, North Korea restored a telephone hotline at their mutual border, and the two countries began to talk. They actually sit in little huts on either side of the border and call each other. Now, North Korea has accepted an offer to attend high-level talks with South Korea beginning on Tuesday, January 9th. The point of the talks is to figure out how North Korean athletes can compete in the Winter Olympics. According to the BBC, these will be the first high-level talks between the Koreas since December 2015. The idea that the Olympics and sport more generally are not baked in politics is bullshit. The International Olympic Committee, the IOC, loves to say that there are no politics in the Olympics. But this is because they're liars. Yeah, it's because they're liars. That actually worked really well. They want to protect their brand, right? It's the same as when the NFL or any college football coach, cough, Nick Saban, (coughs) says politics isn't part of their sport. Politics often means division and disagreement, or at least that's the fear. And anyone in the game of making a profit doesn't want to do anything that could put off a customer. So all these organizations use this narrative move, saying they aren't political, most often to squash protests of and at their sporting events, specifically coming from athletes. We've talked a lot about the kneeling, right? They demand their athletes be apolitical alongside them, a harsh denial of the humanity of the athletes who literally power their games. And if you want to know more about this, there's a wonderful book by Jules Boykoff called Power Games. It's a political history of the Olympics, and he really like goes into it. But back to North Korea. So we can't look at what North Korea is doing in regards to the Olympics without considering its ongoing tensions with the United States around nuclear weapons and big buttons. Trump has already said, quote, <laughs> I feel like I need a better voice for this. If I were involved, sorry, if I were involved, they wouldn't be talking about Olympics right now. They'd be doing no talking or it would be much oh, more serious. That's the president oh. of the United States, you guys. <laughs> I mean, like, this is audio, but if only you could see it's our idols right now. Ugh. Nikki Haley, the U.S. ambassador to the United Nations, floated the idea in early December that U.S. athletes might not attend the Olympics because of these tensions, couching it in this paternalistic idea that they were going to keep athletes home for their own safety. Last week, Senator Lindsey Graham, cue the eye roll, tweeted, quote, allowing Kim Jong-un's North Korea to participate in hashtag Winter Olympics would give legitimacy to the most illegitimate regime on the planet. I'm confident South Korea will reject this absurd overture and fully believe that if North Korea goes to the Winter Olympics, we do not. (sighs) The president of the U.S. figure skating used the IOC's favorite line about the apolitical nature of its event to shut Graham down. Quote, I think they need to be careful saying things like that. Because these athletes have worked so hard to get there. The Olympics should be above politics. They shouldn't be playing politics with this. The president of U.S. figure skating also said, quote, I don't think our athletes would boycott if they've been working all their lives for this. Who knows what Trump will tweet out? But if he were to say boycott it, unless there was a very clear reason why to do it, I don't think our athletes would boycott it. They want to compete. But of course, choosing not to boycott after the president of your country calls for one is in itself a political action, whether you want it to be or not. So I can't even imagine a boycott by Olympic athletes following no. Trump's lead. Like, I just don't even know what that <clears throat> would look like. I do wonder, in this particular climate, how much activism we're actually going to see during the games. What do you all think? What are you thinking going into this? I was just going to say that because of we, we just talked about this 
the racial makeup, like the racialized makeup of athletes in the games is far less, I'm wondering, because we know that the work of this kind of stuff and so much activism does fall on the backs of those from racialized communities. And there was ones carrying that torch, pun intended. So, I mean, it would be really interesting for me to see, you know, I'm waiting for that and to see, I mean, Lindsay Vaughn actually came out a couple of weeks ago. We talked about her on the show. Mm, I think she got a a badass woman of the week or honorable mention for saying that if she did win gold, she wouldn't actually go to the white house. And she was hit with death threats and everything else. We'll already see it emerging. And I think that's, that's really interesting because I mean, her, you know, words were really, really powerful. She talked about, you know, as an Olympian, as someone who believes in the sport, she's really committed to like justice. Like, I mean, I'm paraphrasing what she said, but the the pushback was incredible and she wasn't expecting that. And she also followed up explaining that she didn't, she was horrified by the response she got. So, I mean, I'm anticipating yeah. some of that as well. Yeah. There's a really interesting article in the journal of sports and social issues called staging the winter Olympics or why sports matters to white power by C Richard King. And it's basically talking about the entanglements of white power in the Olympic Games, and it traces the centrality of Eurocentrism and white supremacy to the invention and aberration of, in particular, what you get with the Winter Olympics. Interpretations of that is that this is a time, and there's a similar argument that other scholars have made about extreme sports, right, is that these are places that can especially in interpretation, be a little bit more conservative and, and because it's a, it's a place where you can reclaim sports as a white space away from the kind of uh, historical in, in, quote-unquote infiltration of bodies of color and Black bodies in particular to sports like basketball and football. So there's really interesting kind of scholarly work that interrogates what there is how the culture of the Winter Olympics and the extreme sports cultivates these moments. And I think that it reminds me of thinking about like, you know, P.K. Subin and, and other black hockey players and the burden that they already carry and the the crazy racist things that they already endure, thinking about what it is to be the one person in a sport, right? And what protest looks like when it takes on a, a great risk like that. Yeah. And building on that, I think we are, because of the, we are seeing more diversity. We think we are going to see slightly more outspokenness and hopefully we will see it from allies as well. Like Lindsey Vaughn. I know Adam Rippon, who, like I said, might not be on the Olympic team by the time you heard this or might be, but he's already said that he wouldn't, will not go to the white house if invited as, you know, part of the Olympics. And so, you know, we're already seeing athletes, Uh, step up and and make statements like that. And I do hope it continues. I don't think we're going to see a whole, whole lot of it. But one of the frustrating things to me about all of this, about the posturing and the political posturing that frustrates me, usually the politics and sports, you know, does not frustrate me as much. But this time, the the focus on North Korea and on Kim Kim Jong-un and the fear mongering that's going along there is I think distracting from the typical things we talk about going into the Olympics, which is the fact that Pyeongchang is double its budget. It's I think it's like six or seven billion dollars over budget. The fact that they have these stadiums there that nobody knows who's going to be paying for the continued upkeep or where they're going to be or who's going to be using them after this. The fact that they completely destroyed sacred forest (laughs) to build some of these sites. So these are the typically the things that people that the politically minded folks are 
talking about headed into Olympic Games. And I think because of the distraction of Trump and Kim Jong-un, and because of the fact that South Korea's economy is so booming, so there aren't the, there's not the kind of first world gazing down upon and looking down upon like there was with Rio, you know, the shaming that goes along there, that some really important subjects are just kind of being lost out. I mean, South Korea in 1988 really used the Summer Olympics and the Seoul Summer Olympics to establish itself as a world power. And they're known as one of the most more successful Olympics. But it needs to be said that that also it slowed their economic growth overall. And there were a litany of human rights abuses headed into the 1988 Summer Games, including, I mean, we're, the AP did a huge investigation back in 2016 about how all these human rights abuses have not been dealt with, like nobody's been held responsible. And there were, I mean, thousands and thousands and thousands of people taken off the street, poor people who were prisoned and raped and many killed killed just to get them out of sight for the Olympics in 1988. And nobody's been held responsible oh. for this. So I just I wanted to kind of challenge us all. And I know all Burn It All Down listeners are uh, very, very intelligent and very, you know, thoughtful. So I want to just make sure that we don't, you know, the likelihood there will be some more fear mongering by North Korea and by Kim Jong Un, there will be more stupidity from the United States from Trump. And I don't think, I don't think all that, I don't want to say that's a distraction because obviously like we're dealing with nuclear weapons and that's, it's extremely dangerous, but the likelihood of, I mean, King Jong-un is seeming to want to pick diplomacy. There's, there's thought that the North Korean skaters are going to be allowed to, to, to skate, but that doesn't mean that there's going to be no political impact from these games. And we need to look on the ground in South Korea and make sure, you know, we're, 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 putting our attention to the actual impact these games are going to have on the ground. That's so fascinating because the 1988 Olympics are held up when people criticize mega events and the damage they do. 1988 is held up as like the example of when they're good. (laughs) Yeah. Like they are the shining example. So thank you for filling that for pointing out all of that. And I'd just like to remind everyone that the 80 Olympics were in Calgary, Canada. 88 had a summer Olympics and a winter Olympics in the same year. So... Oh. oh yes 88 okay. is the best year yeah. on it so. that does sound like a good year yeah best also year. Amir that's is the year i was yeah <laughs> next i'm really excited about my interview with double gold medalist and absolutely incredible boxer claressa shields i had an opportunity to talk with her about her upcoming fight her goals for the future her activism around water, the water crisis in Flint, Michigan, and about karaoke. I'm so excited to have double gold medalist, the first American woman to win an Olympic gold medal, and she's done it twice. She's also the current WBC IBF world champion, which was accomplished only in the fourth professional fight of her career, Detroit native, 22-year-old Clarissa Shields. Thank you so much for coming on Burn It All Down, Clarissa. Thank you for having me. Clarissa, how did you come to love and excel at boxing? Was there a specific moment that you fell in love with this sport? I think the first day I went to the gym, the first day I went to the gym, I was 11 years old, and uh, it was some guys sparring inside the ring. And I just remember thinking to myself, like, I could do that. <laughs> so that's kind of when I just was like, I wanted to box. I didn't know that 
everything else that came with it, though. Like, I just wanted to get in the ring and show that I could fight, you know. But the training and, you know, the running and stuff, I really didn't know that that came with boxing until I started being coached. And this is the stuff that he made us do. So you were 11 years old. And did you have any athletic role models, inspiration, supporters that really, really helped you along? At the age of 11, I really didn't have any female role models. Not at the age of 11. I think I had my first female role model when I was 15. And that, and that was Serena Williams. Mm-hmm. And what exactly about her was it that that fueled you? Just her dominance, you know, the way that the way that she wins, you know, stays on top. And I just was like, I want to be like Serena Williams when I get older. Like I want to have, you know, all the commercials and the fame and stuff like that. Yeah. Did you? What about your family? Did your family support you in your journey? I can say that. Listen, my family wasn't really, like, I, I guess I could say that my, my immediate family accepted it quite well. Like, with my dad, my mom, my sister. Mm-hmm. You know, my mom never questioned anything that I that I do. My mom was always like, whatever you decide to do, I'm 100% behind you. My dad was, he thought I would sign up for boxing and then get beat up and quit. But he just, he just signed me up so I wouldn't be able to say in the future, oh, I could have been a good boxer, but my dad never signed me up. You know, so he just just was doing it because I asked. <laughs> were there other sports that you played as well when you were young, or did you just focus on boxing? No, I played a lot of sports growing up. I played volleyball. Mm-hmm. I played football in elementary, flag football. Mm-hmm. I ran track, cross country. Mm-hmm. I played basketball. So you're pretty much an all-round athlete as well. <laughs> yeah. So I wanted to kind of say congratulations on your success as a professional fighter. And was that an easy transition for you to go from an incredibly successful amateur record, which was like 77-1, to professional boxing? It wasn't It wasn't hard. I think that the hardest decision about all of it was, you know, giving up my chance for a 2020 Olympic gold medal. Mm-hmm. That was the biggest decision that I had, you know, because I really, you know, I feel like if I go back to the Olympics, it would be easy for me to defend my Olympic gold medals and that I would win. But then in the pros, I just was like, I really want women's boxing to be around forever. And I feel like they wouldn't have been given the opportunity unless I turned professional. Yeah, definitely. Speaking of the Olympics, I read an article that said that every punch that you threw in Rio, it was for Flint. And you have talked about the water crisis in Flint and you have advocated for your community. And are you still involved with campaigns to support people there? Of course. Um, I'm always in Flint. I go around and talk to talk at schools, churches, let the kids watch my documentary and, you know, just to learn some history about our city and where I'm from. And then they get to meet me in person. I speak about the water crisis. I speak about the murder rates. I just try to keep people in the loop with Flint, you know, even though with all the bad stuff, you still have good people. Definitely. Is there a specific campaign that you, you know, want to shout out or that we can add links to in the show notes about any particular organization that works and helps people there? The Up to Us program. Mm-hmm. I'm, an, I'm an ambassador for their program. And then also the Recreational Center Burston, Burston, where I started training that when I was 11 and I still train there now. Mm-hmm. And um, they have all these different, they have basketball for the kids. They have dance classes, gymnastics, boxing, and tap dancing. So uh, that's the place I want to give uh, give a shout out to, to the recreational center at, at Burston. I mean, Burston Fieldhouse. Definitely. And I know that you've mentioned before that you're actually a huge supporter of Bottles for Babies. Can you tell me a little bit about what they do too? Well, Bottles for Babies is the people that 
as soon as the water crisis got started, they were the ones who were collecting the pallets of water and taking it to the churches and actually taking it to the families before all the celebrities came and started giving out, you know, donating water and everything. Babies for Bottles is like a legit website mm-hmm. where you can send water to, and the water will get to Flint and they'll dish and they'll distribute it to Flint. Yeah, that's that's awesome. We'll definitely add that. So your upcoming fight is January 12th. And what's next for you in terms of goals? I'm just I just want to stay undefeated, fight for more money, fight on, you know, fight on TV and world, you know, be just just to become internationally known. And uh, at the end of my boxing career, probably at the age of 30, 31 to 35, go down in history as the best woman to put on a pair of gloves. Especially <laughs> the to go overall is there anything any advice that you would offer to young boxers out there young fighters that are willing is what's the one advice that you might give them i always tell all the fighters who when they ask me what's my advice to them i say don't be afraid to be different you know not everybody's going to like what you're doing or even understand it you know but when god gives you a passion and a drive for something he doesn't give you that for no reason Mm-hmm. And what about in terms of the, for anybody, any families, if you had actually any advice for any families who are trying to sort of dissuade their daughters from getting into fighting, what would you say to them? You know, like they're, like, like they don't want their daughters to fight? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. They have to look at boxing for the bigger picture. I mean, yes, it's, it's boxing and it's fighting, but also it builds a lot of character, mm-hmm. a lot of self-esteem mm-hmm. and uh, teaches you self-defense. I don't think anybody should be against their daughters knowing knowing how to protect themselves mm-hmm. and defend themselves. You know, in the world we live in now, you know, you got so many perpetrators, you got sexual assaulters, mm-hmm. people, you know, uh, people that's raping people and sexual harassment. I think it's good for girls to have some kind of self-defense to defend themselves, not just knowing how to twist somebody's arm and, you know, get them off you or something like that. I mean, actually knowing how to fight, you know what I mean? Yes, definitely. Last question I'm going to ask you is that what do you do for downtime? Well, how do you relax and what's your self-care practice? You know, I have a few self-care practices. I like to get massages. I do karaoke. Oh, no way. <laughs> That's yeah, awesome. yeah, I do. I do karaoke. You know, I like to hang out with my friends and I'm all over on social media. So yeah. that's what I kind of do in my downtime. And, what's your favorite you know, karaoke song? Favorite karaoke song? <laughs> it used to be Eli Golding. The name of the song called? Let me find a song for you based on my phone. <laughs> Will you sing some for me? <laughs> oh, see, now that's... Then I'm like, wait a minute, you know. <laughs> I'm going to throw no singing career. <laughs> oh, it's Eli Golding. Anything could happen. Oh, and wow. I like Rihanna, Rockstar 101. Oh, wow. That's amazing. I had That's amazing. I had no idea. So I just really want to thank you for you know, is chatting with us and talking to us. And we were absolutely rooting for you on January 12th. We wish you the best of luck. And thanks again for coming on Burn It All Down. Thank you. I appreciate you guys having me. <laughs> thanks. Now on to everyone's favorite segment, including ours, the burn pile. Amira, would you like to go first? Sure. Well, this past week, we had yet another chapter in Rooney Rule drama, or rather, Mm. lack of Rooney Rule drama. (laughs) So the Rooney Rule for folks who need a refresher is the NFL's way of trying to increase diversity in the head coach and um, general manager ranks. In 2003, they instituted this rule mandating that 
openings for teams interviewing for openings for head coaches uh, need to make sure they have minority candidates in their pool of applicants and take serious looks at them. In 2009, it was expanded to include GM searches and other front office positions. And Every year, every other year, we go through this thing where, you know, it's basically shown to be the sham that it is. So the Raiders have hired John Gruden, and everybody knew they wanted John Gruden. And then retroactively, they brought in some other candidates, including candidates of color. So they were fulfilling the Rooney Rule requirements, and that's a sham. And just like the scrutiny on the Browns GM search that happened last year, you know, we had this conversation then too, and we're going to continue to have it. But there's two particular parts of the conversation that I'm burning in particular this week. First, the idea that the Raiders should be somehow exempt from criticism because they have a history of hiring of people of color and women, notably Art Shell as head coach in 89 and Amy Trask as CEO in 97. But you know what? I'm sorry. No, they're still actually making a mockery of the rule. When you are just bringing in somebody to interview, you so you're in compliance, but you're not actually seriously giving them consideration, then you're wasting that person's time and you're just Mm -hmm. going through the motions. That's still a sham. It doesn't matter that in the 90s and in the 80s, you know, Al Davis made these moves and that you have a history of this. No, that should make you want to continue to exemplify that legacy. So that's the first part of the conversation that absolutely drove me up, drove me up a wall this week. And the second is, again, this renewed anger at the rule itself like why are y'all mad at the rule itself you should be mad at the systemic (laughs) issue that leads to the rule i don't understand this and so this this really irritates me because you know last year there was a report that showed that 80 out of the 85 leagues offensive coordinators and unit coaches were white on defense less than 10 people were coordinators of color and in a league where 95 percent of head coaching hires come from coordinators and existing head coaches right you see how that can lead lead to a very very real diversity problem and diversity in nfl management and coaching sucks ass and it's ridiculous and it's never going to be solved as long as we pretend that the rudy rule is doing something when people treat it like the champ it's an old boys club, which is also, by the way, the defense against having women's coaches is that you didn't come up through these ranks. But one of the things that happens, and there's minority coaches on record doing this, is basically you don't get promotions. So you get maybe a bonus or more money to take over a unit, but you're not getting promoted. And so what that creates is a sport that is majority black being governed and coached by people who are majority right. And what the Raiders did this week, and if the Fitzpollard committee that oversees the enforcement of the rule, which they will find that they were in compliance, all they're doing is reinforcing that the rule is a sham and I'm burning it down. Burn. 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 Lens? Yeah. Hi. I would like to talk a little bit about now former Arizona football coach Rich Rodriguez who you might have heard this week it came out and I would like to say all the information that I'm saying in the next couple minutes is from uh, Deadspins, Lindsay Adler and Diana Moskovitz who are brilliant so Rodriguez serially harassed, allegedly serially harassed his assistant including grabbing his penis in front of her trying to kiss her telling her i love you in a text message and making her cover for his extramarital affair this is according to a claim that she filed last month in the state attorney general's office seeking 7.5 million dollars in damages against rodriguez and his wife so apparently after rodriguez grabbed his penis in front of her the woman and another employee nicknamed rodriguez the predator 
And when she tried to transfer to another Ooh. department, she was told by a university official that Rod- Rodriguez wouldn't allow that to happen. So one of the state, one of the Whoa. points in the claim is that the plaintiff uh, felt comfortable working for Rodriguez for a couple of years. But then in 2013, according to her claim, he created something called, quote, the hideaway book and not established what she says were a ghost set of procedures for coaches and a few members of the football operations staff that attempted to help Rodriguez conceal his infidelity from his wife. And according to this former assistant, the document comp- contained the line, deep breath, everyone, Title IX doesn't exist in our office. Okay. Mm. So uh, Rodriguez's lawyer, who it might be said is a major donor to Arizona State University, giving $10 million to the law school. He has said that this is all completely without merit, that he will fight until Rodriguez's name is clear and that Rodriguez will be able to then get other coaching jobs. But another note is that Rodriguez will receive a $6.3 million buyout from the university after his firing. So I'd like to torch all of that. Burn. Jeez. Yeah. Burn. 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 I'm going to go next. And this is actually a really sad one for me, but it needs to be done. needs to be burned. Ronaldo de Assis Moreira, who is otherwise known as our beloved Ronaldinho Gocho, the legendary Brazilian footballer, and actually one of the reasons I completely fell in love with Barca, is rumored to be endorsing Jair Bolsonaro, Bolsonaro, sorry, a racist, misogynist, and homophobic former army captain, now politician, who revels in authoritarian regimes. He is a known supporter of torture used against resistors in Brazil, political resistors. He's an evangelical Christian and not exactly what we think of in the history of those brilliant Brazilian footballers and politics, those who were, you know, invested in politics, one of whom was Socrates, who was like unbelievable historically in the world of sports and politics. Ronaldinho is being considered as a potential candidate as senator for this elitist and dangerous man. And it's a serious blow, in my opinion, to the image of a player who has really brought so much joy to the pitch, the beautiful game. I mean, his grin is phenomenal. His uh, videos of dribbling through players and his, you know, uh, keepy-uppies are actually part of my self-care regime. Now, it shows how possibly how the politicking of power and money in the football world has actually emerged. And this is something that, like I said, we don't expect perfection from anyone, but we kind of expect them to be able to navigate through like horrific people. And especially when there is a history of leftward leaning politics from footballers in Brazil, Um, especially when this particular person, when Ronaldinho grew up super poor, his dad actually was a dock worker and died when he was eight. He worked two jobs. He grew up in poverty. And then to be supporting a man who was so blatantly from the upper echelon of elitism and and, and militarism in in Brazil, it was really, really sad. Actually, to be honest, I was really sad when I read it. It seems misguided and reckless and, you know, almost uncaring. And Ronaldinho was the player of the people. So that just uh, we're going to link the Jacobin magazine article about Jair Bolsonaro and, you know, and his connection with Ronaldinho. But I just heavy heart and I got to burn it. Burn. Burn. Jess. Yeah. Hi, all. It's me again here to complain once again about how fucking hard it is to watch women's sports, even when the teams are awesome 
And even given all the access to women's sports that we are told we should be thankful for these days. So I know that I have specifically complained about this in the past. I know that Amira has as well, but it will never stop being infuriating. So on December 31st, I went to the University of Texas women's basketball game against West Virginia. I didn't want to miss it. UT was ranked number eight, West Virginia number nine. Happy New Year to me. So my husband stayed home, but he wanted to watch the game. And I should say off the top that we no longer have cable. We stream everything, but we do have DirecTV now, and we have access to a bunch of different ways to watch sports because that's clearly very important to me. And I was at the game, and we're maybe five minutes into it, and I start to get these mad text messages from my husband (laughs) because he can't find the game anywhere. Uh, These are two top 10 teams. He eventually did find it. He told me the entire saga when I got home. He had to stream it on the Fox Sports Go app, but that was its own adventure. He had to download it. He had to sign up for it, get it to stream on the TV. The app itself wasn't very good. And mind you, my husband (laughs) is a software developer and programmer who understands computers and streaming better than I ever will. So why is this so damn hard? Like, I know that we know the answer to that, but it hurts my heart to see that two top two top 10 women's basketball teams that you basically have to be a tech savvy genius with infinite patience who's willing to do cartwheels and backflips in order to watch the game like I will never not think of these moments when people say that women's sports aren't popular because people don't want to watch them want to watch them if only we could burn it burn it So after all that brilliant and necessary burning, we want to celebrate some of the amazing people. Honorable mentions go out to Sheldon Kerr, who was on her way to becoming one of 12 IFMGA certified female mountain guides Mm. in the USA. So this is part of the outdoor sport culture, and there's only one. So that's really brilliant. Also, uh, honorable mention to Sarah Custop, NBA's first solo female analyst and color commentator. And I didn't realize that, that she was the first solo one. I mean, I think from what I understand, it comes in teams of people, but she is actually gearing to do that and has become that. Now for the baddest woman of the week, drum roll, please. <laughs> We, we're not getting not better at that, no, but it's just so charming. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, we're not. We're not getting any better. Really excited about this one, Shaquilla Hill. Now, this Grambling State junior guards assist in the last seconds of the game against Alabama State, which gave him the win, made Hill the fourth quadruple double in NCAA women's basketball history. On Wednesday night, and since 1993, it hasn't been done. So that was amazing. I mean, she was lauded all over social media and props to the NBA players and the WNBA players giving her mm-hmm. props. I mean, she has an incredible career ahead of her, and that was LeBron that was James just so talked about her today, and, or and, he gave an interview all about her. Like he uh, he was like, we were nice. watching it in the coffee shop. We were so excited. It was really cute. And it was great that this uh, game also kind of amplified the long history of Black women's basketball at, at, at historically Black colleges yes. and universities. Now on to what's good. Jessica, you want to start? Yeah. 
I do. I'm so happy to be back here and excited about Burn It All Down in 2018. Yeah. Like that's something that is good. But also <gasps> I got an Instant Pot for Christmas <laughs> and I am so excited about this machine. I've been using it so much since that day. I've made hard boiled eggs in it. I used it as a rice cooker last night. I made chicken and dumplings. I've made tomato soup, steel cut oatmeal, chili, Swedish meatballs, not all at the same time. It is amazing. It is a really, really cool machine and I have just been enjoying it so much. Amira? Yeah, you know, I have been, I'm currently in Washington, D.C. for the American Historical Association Conference. And the conference was fine and I had some fun grad school reunions and whatnot. But my best reunions was the chance to see Brenda and the chance to see Lindsay. And oh. it was just, Jealous. you know, anytime Jealous. I get to see my co host, it is a bright moment in my life. And then my other thing that's good, I'm not exactly excited that winter break is over. And that by 10 a.m. tomorrow morning, I will be teaching, apparently, they tell me. But I am really excited that one of the classes I'm teaching this spring is a gender and sexuality in sport class. And they're reading Jess's book, and they're reading articles by my co-host, and they're listening to the podcast. We're just going to have a great, great, great time talking through issues of gender and sexuality in sports. So I am looking forward to that and ready to get it going this week. Awesome. Yeah, well, Amira stole mine, but I do want to say I did have that in the dock that I was excited to meet her. Or It was my first time meeting Brenda in person, which was amazing. And yeah, and, and seeing her and Amira was just great and a good way to save me from the cold for a few minutes. And um, I also, my cousin's getting married next weekend, so I'm going to go back home for a long, another long weekend, and I am so happy for him and his future wife, who has been uh, around for a while, and she's ha- they're having a baby together, too, so that's really exciting, and it's just going to be a really lovely, I think, casual, but also special time, so I, I can't wait for that. It'll be a- another good way to kick off the year. That's awesome. Like everybody, I'm so excited to be back with Burn It All Down. Love it. It's the highlight of my week and right now the highlight of my life. <laughs> Yesterday, I actually was at the NASH conference, NASH 80, which is the student journalism conference in Canada, which is held in Toronto by the eye opener at Ryerson University, their paper. It was amazing to go. I had so many people talk about Burn It All Down, and that was really nice to hear that. And we appreciate Aww, all of our, thanks, y'all. We appreciate all of our listeners and just they're so excited. One more thing. I've been really excited by Jimmy Ma's performance of Turn Down for What on the Ice. Yes. <laughs> so yes. I am kind of really, I'm kind of looking into those, and that's uh, given me a lot of happiness. January, the last thing I'll say is January is my birthday month. So Ooh. I'm, yeah, so Yay. I'm a little bit excited. I was supposed to go to the Shakira concert. I've been whining about this for a while, and uh, she is having vocal cord hemorrhaging, vocal cord, sorry, hemorrhaging, and canceled her tour and delayed it till August, actually. So I need to find something else to uh, get me through January in this cold. So my birthday will have to be it. Anyway. (laughs) What day is your birthday? (laughs) January 22nd is my birthday. My Um, daughter's is the 30th. Oh, my daughter's is the 30th too. Really? Yeah. She's she's turning 10 and I'm losing my mind. But that's Mine, mine's turning 16 and has given me a list of what, what she expects. So we'll have to <laughs> Sounds see. like your daughter, Shereen. That sounds... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so true. I love you so I'm much. I'm going to send you all. I'm going to send you all that Amazon link, okay? I'm waiting your list. Yes. That is too cute. <laughs> 
Anyway, that's it for this week in Burn It All Down. Burn It All Down lives on SoundCloud, but can be found at iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and TuneIn. We appreciate all your reviews, feedback, subscriptions, so please subscribe and rate us and let us know what we did well and how we can improve. You can find us on Facebook at Burn It All Down, on Twitter at Burn It All Down Pod, on Instagram at Burn It All Down Pod, and you can email us at burnitalldownpod at gmail.com. And check out our website, www.burnitalldownpod, where you'll find previous episodes, transcripts, and a link to our Patreon. We would appreciate you subscribing, sharing, and rating our show, which helps us to do the work we love to do and keep burning what needs to be burned. On behalf of Jess, Lindsay, Amira, I'm Shireen. Thank you for joining us. <laughs>